Good morning. Uh, I had to compose myself for a minute before I came up here. Such a beautiful time of worship and communion. Um, it's good to see you this morning. You doing okay? Thank you for being with us. I know this is a crazy season right now. Uh, the snow and ice and cold weather doesn't make it any easier on us, and I appreciate you making the effort and coming out and worshiping with us. What a joy it is to be a family together wrestles through some of these difficulties together, like COVID that's going on. I also want to say this to anybody that's watching online, if you're part of our family and you have COVID and you have any need that we can serve you with, please let us know how we can serve you. We want to bless you, we want to help you, and we want our city groups to do that as well. So uh, just let us know and we'll, we'll step in and do what we can. Uh, if you're new to us, if this is uh, first, second, third, and 15th time, I don't know, uh, we're just glad you're here. We appreciate the fact that you're here. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm excited today because we get to start a new series uh, in a book and a letter that I love very much, the, the letter of Ephesians. This is a wonderful, wonderful, deep, theological, and yet practical letter. Uh, and I love it very much. One theologian says, uh, William Barclay says, Ephesians is the queen of the epistles. <laughs> I like that. I like this, uh, this, another theologian says, Ephesians is a letter of pure music. Of course, that got my attention, right? It's a letter of pure music. What we read here is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. It, it, it promises community in a world of disunity, reconciliation in a place of alienation, and peace instead of war. See, the overall message of the book of Ephesians is really twofold. It kind of breaks down literally almost the first three chapters and the last three chapters. And what it is is the first is about our identity, who we are. And even deeper, it's about our position or our positional identity, who we are in Christ. And the second half is about our practice, how we live, how we practice, how we live in that identity in Christ. So that's, those are the overarching themes. Of course, we know most of us that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to uh, the church in Ephesus. But before we get to the letter, I want to give us some context. I want, by the time we get to the letter this morning, to have a real grasp on what Ephesus is like, how Paul has connected to the city of Ephesus, uh, and God, how God has used his ministry in the church there. And so I want to, I want to look, first of all, at the city of Ephesus. Uh, it's located in modern-day Turkey today. At the time of, of the writing and Paul's ministry to Ephesus, it was the fourth or fifth largest port city uh, in the known world. It was a, a happening place, right? There's a lot of things going on, and uh, the port business was a big one. It had, and still has, you can go visit it today, a massive amphitheater. Seats twenty four to 25,000 people. I think we have a picture of it, don't we, Jason? I mean, it, just to give you some sort of scope, some sort of sense of what, I mean, this was built in like 250 B.C., before you know, before Christ, uh, and, and so when we get to talking today about the amphitheater and some of the things that happened even in Paul's ministry in the amphitheater, your mind can go to that picture and to the scope of just how big and, and epic and influential this city is. In that place, they held games like the Olympics, uh, but they also are known for holding games like with gladiators. In fact, just outside that complex, out the front and to the right side is a whole burial ground of gladiators. Not too long ago, a university did a study on all the, the bodies that were buried in there and tried to figure out their, their cause of death. And it wasn't pretty. 
uh, and mostly because of gladi gladiatorial games that happened in that place. So that's a place of death. It's a place of theater, and we see how even uh, it plays in Paul's ministry here in just a minute. Uh, Paul had an amazing ministry in Ephesus, but it wasn't always fun in Olympic Games, right? It was also very difficult at times. He faced a lot of opposition, a lot of um, struggle. It was a very dark place spiritually. It was a place where there was forms of paganism and enlightenment and Gnosticism. Uh, people believed literally that if you, the more sexual experience that you had, the more mystical experience that you had, the more spiritual you were. There was all kinds of nonsense going on back then. And guess what? A lot of that nonsense is still playing out today, right? In massive ways. And some of us don't even realize how deep the evil goes in our current culture. It was happening here in Ephesus as well. It was also home to the Roman emperor cult, which is where they literally worshiped Caesar. We talked about that two weeks ago when I talked about Polycarp giving his life. Uh, instead of worshiping Caesar, he chose to worship Jesus as Lord of all. So this was home, in, in essence, to that as well. There was also a headquarters or a temple for the goddess Diana. Uh, in Greek, they called her Artemis. It was massive. You know, we, we lived in Nashville for, uh, I don't know, 11 years, something like that. And in Centennial Park, we had a replica of the Parthenon. If you've ever been to Centennial Park in downtown Nashville, and see, it's beautiful. It, it looks very similar to what you're seeing on the screen, but... The temple of Artemis, or the temple of Diana, was ten times the size of the Parthenon. If you can wrap your brain around that. These ceilings are, are, are not even uh, like 30 feet tall. Those columns are 60 feet tall. If you can get some sense of the scale. They were also gilded in gold and silver. I mean, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. So what I'm trying to get, help you see is when you came into Ephesus, you, you were someplace that, that was happening, right? Business was going on. All different types of spiritualism going on. There was a great, uh, large gathering of people. When you can set 25,000 people at some games alone, it's a large city. Originally, it was a Greek colony. By the time of Paul's ministry, it was a Roman province in Asia. And Paul, of course, writes his letter to the church or to believers in this city. But before we get to the letter, we got to remember how they became believers in that city. How do we see Paul's connection to that city, right? First time that we hear about Ephesus is on Paul's second missionary journey. You might remember on that journey, he's got Silas, he's picked up Timothy, and they're kind of going around the north of the Mediterranean, and, and they, they have a desire to go into uh, Bithynia, and the Spirit says no. I don't want you to go into these places. It's a very interesting uh, study in that. But Paul receives a vision. We call it the Macedonian call, where a man from Macedonia says, come and preach this gospel to us. And so that's what they do. They follow that as God's spirit leading them to Macedonia. They go into Macedonia. Uh, they, they go over to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. They end up in uh, Corinth. And it's in Corinth that Paul meets these dear friends of his that he's going to keep for the rest of his ministry and the rest of his life, Aquila and Priscilla, this couple, married couple. He, he, he becomes good friends with them. He actually lives with them. They actually do business together. They're all tent makers. They work in, in leather goods. And so you can imagine in port cities where people need sails for sailing vessels, 
This is a good business. And so this is what Paul does to make a living in Corinth. So he's working with Aquila and Priscilla. He's discipling them. He's, he's doing mission and ministry in the city of Corinth. The church is being built and grown up in Corinth. And then Paul, like most of Paul's missions, runs into uh, some defiance, runs into some opposition and persecution from the Jews. And so when he meets that, he decides, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and head back to my mission base, which is Antioch in Syria. I'm going to go back there. And so when he leaves, he takes with him this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And the first stop is a place called Ephesus, right? This is the first thing that we see uh, about Ephesus and Paul's uh, missionary journeys here. Acts 18, verse 19. And this says, and they, speaking of Aquila and Priscilla and the Apostle Paul, came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail for Ephesus. Did Paul not want to continue to do ministry with people who were interested in what he had to say? No, it wasn't it. He was literally on a travel schedule. They stopped in Ephesus, and the, and the guy said, hey, we're leaving in a day or two days. Be here at this time when the ship leaves. And Paul's like, uh, I can't stay this time, but if God wills, I'll come back. So that's the first time we see Ephesus. Of course, he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there to do ministry, to make disciples. The next time we see is Paul's third missionary journey. He, he's written this letter uh, to the Galatians. We did a whole series on that. You might remember that his interest in uh, the church of Galatia is that they were preaching a false doctrine. They were preaching a works-based salvation. And Paul didn't want to have anything to do with it. He, he wanted them to know that Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is our only way of salvation. And so he's written the letter of, of Galatians to them. His first stop on his third missionary journey, Galatia, right? He wants to make sure that they've heard the letter, they've seen it, they're living in the truth of who God is uh, through Jesus and his grace alone, not our works, right? And so he, he's in Galatia, he's in Phrygia, and then the, the text tells us he goes overland. A lot of times he travels by boat or whatever, but he comes overland to Ephesus. When he gets there, he meets some of John the Baptist's uh, disciples. These guys have heard about repentance. These guys have heard about Jesus, but they'd never received the Holy Spirit. And so Paul goes, he lays hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit. It's a pretty dramatic moment, and it sort of begins the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. You can imagine after what happened to those guys, and you can study it in Acts, they, they stay with Paul. <laughs> they want to learn from Paul. They were under John the Baptist, now they're going to be under Paul, and they're going to be disciples. And Paul automatically, immediately has disciples who can help him with this mission and this ministry. Uh, so he stays in Ephesus. He, he, he does what Paul does when he's in a city. And the first thing Paul does in a city is what? He goes to the synagogue. This is Paul's MO. This is what he does. He goes to the synagogue in Ephesus. And, and let me just tell you, help you understand why. <laughs> in the synagogue, every Saturday, at some point, they're going to talk about the Messiah. They're going to hope that, that God would send the Messiah. They're, they're praying, Lord, send the Messiah. Well, guess what Paul knows? That God has sent the Messiah, right? Can you imagine being the guy that has that information? I can't wait to get to the synagogue. You guys, seriously, can you imagine? 
I mean, just the excitement, the joy that I got to tell you something. We've been waiting for this day all of our lives, all the, all the lives, all the years of our people. We've been waiting for this day. Messiah has come. Does that give you some context to why he wants to get to the synagogue? To tell people about Jesus. And so he gets there and he, he stays in the synagogue for three months. It's the longest amount of time Paul spends in a synagogue in our record. So he's there for three months and he's preaching and people are coming to know Jesus and they're being discipled and following him. Well, eventually, opposition faces Paul. And so they're ready for Paul to move on. So Paul moves out of the synagogue. He's still living in Ephesus. He's three months in the synagogue and now he's going to go to a place that we studied called the Hall of Tyrannus. It's kind of like a, a building or an event center or someplace where he may know the owner and he's letting him use this space for a little time during the day. In their culture, they literally had siestas, if you will. They would work a little while, then they would, they would nap or rest for a little while, and they would come back and they'd work a little bit longer. Well, instead of resting, Paul would take that time period and go, who wants to learn about the Messiah? And he would make disciples in that time period. So he would do his work, he would make tents, and then he would tell people about Jesus, and then he would go back and make tents, right? So he was in the Hall of Tyrannus, discipling, teaching people for two years, can you imagine sitting under the Apostle Paul for two years in discipleship? Do you think you'd learn something? I think we would too. In fact, we get a little glimpse of this moment. Acts 19.8 says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's the church of Jesus, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Anybody who wanted to follow him and learn more about Jesus, those were disciples. And he reasoned with them daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. Now watch this. So that, those two words mean that because he did this for two years, because his ministry was so effective for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. Was Paul's ministry successful in Ephesus? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Three months in the synagogue, two years in the hall of Tyrannus, and then Luke says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let me, let me just pause for a minute and put a, do a commercial, can I? When it comes to us being the body of Christ, when it comes to us being disciples of Jesus, it's important for us to learn what it means to follow Jesus, right? To be disciples. It's equally important for us to learn, to, as disciples, learn how to make disciples. We have to learn what it means to be disciples. And yet we also have to learn what it means to make disciples. This text says that Paul for two years was doing that very thing. There's no way Paul could, could accomplish that by himself or with Aquila and Priscilla or with a few people. He was teaching people how to be disciples of Jesus and how to go into the world and make disciples. And because of that faithful teaching and because of that faithful obedience to the great commission of Jesus to go and make disciples... They were able to reach all the residents of Asia with the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Isn't that amazing? What an incredible sentence. So Paul's in Ephesus. He's there three years pastoring, teaching, 
making disciples. He's preaching in the synagogue. He's teaching in the classroom setting. Has an amazing, amazing ministry. And yet still he faces great opposition. Acts 19, verse 23, look what it says. It says, about that time there arose no little disturbance. I love the way Luke speaks. I, lo- I love the way he, he uses uh, this, this phrase. He sort of uses it in a negative way, but it's a big deal, right? About that time uh, arose no little disturbance. In other words, a huge disturbance concerning the church or the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. You ever been to Disney World or some other place that has a large monument of some kind? When you finish the tour, right, you go into the gift shop, and they have in every color and every size and every price point a model of the thing you just got to witness, right? It was no different in Ephesus. Again, uh, the temple of Diana or Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world. When you came into Ephesus and you saw that thing sitting on the hill, you were like, oh, my goodness. It would gleam in the sun. And you would go visit it, and you would just be awestruck at this immensity of this place. And they would sell these little uh, statues, little idols of Diana, little, little statues or idols of the temple. And let me tell you something. It was big business. They were idol worshipers. They felt like they could take those idols into their home, and they could pray to her and that she would be the god of the hunt and she would be the god of agriculture and that she would be the goddess of, of fertility and family. And so they would pray to her and they would, want, they would hope these things were, would happen by praying. So you can imagine what's happening here in Ephesus as Paul is teaching and preaching and now the body of Christ is going forward the way God has designed us to on mission. People are not relying on their idols. They're not relying on this evil reality of demonic uh, influence in this city and there's so much of it. Paul is literally casting demons out of people. He, he, he's, he's doing amazing things. People's lives are being transformed and they're not trusting their idols. They're getting rid of their idols. They're burning their books of witchcraft. They're melting these idols. I mean, and, the, and they're not buying more. So the makers of these idols are going, uh, wait a minute, that's, that's our economy. That was literally this evil economy in Ephesus. And it just shows you a little bit also of the significance of Paul's ministry in Ephesus when he was actually able to make a dent in that economy, that's a big deal. That shows you some of the, how widespread the gospel of Jesus was transforming lives. Paul had a difficult time uh, with Demetrius. You might remember when we studied in, in uh, Acts. Demetrius stirs up all the, the guild of, of idol makers and smiths. And they gather together and they grab two of Paul's interns. And they drag them back to that place I just showed you, the amphitheater. And guess what they want to see happen in the amphitheater, (laughs) right? They want to kill these guys. These are two of the guys that are are messing with our business. These are two of the guys that are telling people about this guy named Jesus, and they're, they're not buying our stuff. So they need to die. Paul is in the amphitheater. He's watching what's going on, and the believers with him are holding Paul back. Paul's like, let me go, let me go. And Paul, they said, no, you'll just die. So they're holding on to Paul, and Paul wants to get in there, get into the situation, into the debate, the argument. And God brings peace to that moment. They all leave. It was a big deal. It was a scary moment. In fact, Paul describes that moment in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, 
I'm, I'm willing to, to speak or preach the truth of Jesus so much so that I was willing to fight the beasts of Ephesus. That's the way he puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. He's speaking about that moment in the amphitheater. It was a scary moment. It was a very much a, a close call. So Paul had amazing ministry and he also had difficulty, as we all do in ministry. I want to just take for a moment here. It's a little bit of a longer passage, but I want us to read it because it so gives you the context of the heart of his leadership in Ephesus, okay? If you have your Bibles or you can look on screen, Acts 20. There's this little snapshot. You know, sometimes our, our elders, we meet every couple of weeks and we're praying for you and the ministry that God is, is doing in our church and what he's doing right now. Sometimes we record those when we're on Zoom. You know what I mean? I'm sure you've all been on meetings. You've, you've had to record a Zoom meeting. It's kind of like Luke recorded a Zoom meeting for Paul and his elders uh, of Ephesus. And we get to see the heart and hear the history and mission of Paul and his leaders from Ephesus. Acts 20 verse 17. Now from Miletus, now this is Paul coming back and he has to stop in Miletus. Paul didn't have the ability to go, hey, let's, can we stop in Ephesus, guys? That'd be nice. He's just on a boat and the boat has certain stopping points. And this point, he stops in Miletus, not in Ephesus. So when he gets to Miletus, he says, go send for the Ephesian elders and have them come here to me. He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Notice Paul says, I know you won't see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves, he's speaking to the elders here, leaders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves may come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, from the people listening to me right here in Miletus, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone, of, everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the influence among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Now watch this, 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. That is such a fascinating little text of scripture for me. It shows us the heart of Paul and his ministry. It shows us how he deals with leaders. It shows us how he loves people. It shows us his evangelism. It shows us his discipleship. It shows us his leadership training. It shows us so much about his ministry specific to the church in Ephesus. One thing, you can't read that and not say that Paul doesn't deeply love the people of Ephesus. That he doesn't deeply love these men and their families. It teaches us, it shows us that he, he did his ministry with full heart and emotion. He, he ministered with tears, he said. Right? He was so connected that he, he ministered with emotion and tears. He didn't shrink back. He was bold in his ministry there. He taught in public and in private, literally from house to house. And then he takes a moment to, to take the, the leaders, the elders, a little further. He says, beware. He warns them of false teachers that will come in, false teachers they'll have to deal with. Uh, and he gives them instructions on how they should lead the church. And then he has to give them this difficult news when he says, I know you will not see my face again. That's a hard thing to say. Imagine just your, your group of best friends and meeting them for dinner and saying, hey guys, this is the last time you'll ever see me on this side of heaven. That would be a difficult moment, wouldn't it? And so what they do is they kneel down together as these literally dear friends, holding one another. It says in two or three times, embracing, holding, kissing, weeping together because these were real relationships and they say goodbye and they literally walk him to the ship to tell him goodbye. Incredible moment. Now I want us to get to the, the letter of Ephesians. I want us to, again, to begin to understand the context of the city, the context of Paul's relationships, ministry, church, heart in the city. And then I want us to see, even as Paul writes this letter, what the conditions are, right? Paul writes this letter from a prison cell. Uh, he mentions it several times. I'll get into that in just a second. Paul writes this letter seven to eight, ten maybe, years after he has left Ephesus. So after he's left Ephesus, can you imagine what, what could happen in a church? <laughs> right? Paul is, has done this ministry. He's done this discipleship. He's got these leaders. But seven or eight, ten years later, he, he maybe hears some things. A lot, of, a lot of times the epistles, Paul writes to these churches so that he can correct something, right? Galatians is, not, uh, is one of those examples. There was bad theology. Paul writes to correct that theology. That's not the case with Ephesians. Now, he may correct a few little things, but for the most part, this is more, the, the form of the book of Ephesians is a prayer. It's a gorgeous, beautiful prayer for those people. And now you begin to see from the heart it comes from. Right? Not only that, it's, it's this sort of a, a book of mystery because it talks about Christ being over the universe and over the church. And there's this, this sense of deep understanding and theology and doctrine. And yet Paul touches on these issues of identity and unity 
uh, together as the body. So Paul's writing from a, a Roman prison. We finished our Acts series a little while back this past summer in Acts 28, the last chapter. And we got to see a little bit of the context of where Paul writes these letters, right? Uh, Paul mentions that he's a prisoner throughout the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 3, verse 1 says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Ephesians 4, 1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Ephesians 6, 20, Paul says, I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So three times in the book of Ephesians, he talks about being a prisoner. But I want us to look, go back to Acts 28 and get a sense of the context of where he's writing this from. Acts 28, verse 16, says, and this is Luke. Remember, Luke is traveling with Paul. Luke is not a prisoner. He's just traveling with him. So they're, they're going to hold Paul, and Luke's going to be able to be free and write and move along and, and take care of Paul's needs. So Luke says, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So Paul's on house arrest, literally chained to a soldier, a Roman soldier, which is also going to make sense when we get to Ephesians 6 and we learn about uh, the suit of armor and all the things that Paul looks at the guy next to him and writes down the things that we ought to have in our own life. He's chained to a soldier in house arrest, but yet he has freedom to do ministry, to answer questions, and to write. And it's here that Paul writes many letters uh, from this Roman prison. Uh, verse 30 of Acts 28 says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So this was a good season. He's in Rome, even though he's connected to a soldier, and they take shifts. One of the things I love about this is, you know, if you're going to be connected to Paul, he's going to be teaching you about Jesus. You don't have a choice. I mean, you can't close your ears enough and be chained to this guy and not learn about Jesus. And so in Philippians, which is one of the books Paul writes in this setting, it says that all the imperial guard have heard about Jesus, and now we know how, right? So in this setting, Paul writes four books, the prison epistles, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and to his friend Philemon. So that gives us a little bit of context of the city of Ephesus, Paul's connection to the city, the people there, his ministry there, and even the context of writing the letter. But this morning, before we go, I've got a few minutes left to, to share this with you. I want us just to get into the text a little bit in Ephesians 1, can we? We're going to just look at two verses. Can you handle that? First two verses of Ephesians chapter 1, and then we're going to go. Let's look quickly. Ephesians 1, Paul an apostle of Christ, Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me this morning. Father, Lord, we, uh, God, we want to pause just for a moment because we, we don't take lightly the power of your word, the beauty of of your word. And Lord, I pray that even in this moment we are, we are seeking you and, and asking you to, to make our hearts pliable to what you want to teach us. Spirit of the living God, lead us to all truth that we can mine from even these two verses and help us to be obedient to what you ask of us as we learn it today. 
Spirit, lead us. I pray that you would help me to decrease in this time and that you would increase and that we would follow you as to whatever you want to teach us and lead us toward. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So you, you might have read through the book of Ephesians before, and you think you can read a couple of quick verses, and there's not a whole lot there, so let me just keep moving, but you would be wrong. There's actually a lot of content in these first two verses. Very quickly, I want to just share three things from two verses, okay? Here's what they are. I want to talk about Paul's identity and authority. He says, I, Paul, an apostle by the will of God, right? Then the second thing I want to talk about is his recipients, the people who are receiving this letter. This is... Uh, the church of Ephesus is not a little building somewhere in Ephesus because the church is not a building, it's a people, right? It's not a building in Ephesus. Paul's writing this to groups of people who are meeting in house churches all around Ephesus, outside of Ephesus, in Ephesus. Eventually, Timothy becomes the elder or the bishop over these house churches. That was Timothy's role when Paul wrote to Timothy. So he's writing to all these house churches. He's writing to all these believers. And the expectation of Paul is when you get this letter from me, read it in your home with your church, with your, with your family of believers. And then take it over to Adam's family of believers. Let's read it. And then take it over here to Jerry's family of believers. And they would make copies. And it was called a circular letter. And the expectation was that all of the body of Christ around Ephesus would read this and know this. And by God's grace... And, and privilege, we get to read it today. And we get to learn from these unbelievable truths that Paul wants to give to us. The first thing I want you to notice that Paul wants to make uh, clear is his identity, right? And his authority. Paul identifies himself. He's the author, Paul, from, from the very first word, Paul. <laughs> Paul's writing this. Paul's the one who is, is responsible for this letter. And then he says, uh, Paul, an apostle. Of Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to remember something. Paul has not always been Paul. <laughs> Guess what? Pastor Drew has not always been Pastor Drew. I was a mess. Broken, full of addiction and struggle, sinfulness. Have not always been who I am now, and I'm not done growing and being sanctified in Jesus. I'm I'm still pretty much a wreck, held together by the grace of Jesus. Paul has not always been Paul, an apostle. Paul was Saul. Saul was a murderer. Saul attacked the church of Jesus. Saul was arrogant. In fact, his very name was taken from Israel's first king, King Saul. You might remember King Saul was a guy who was head and shoulders above all other men, right? Oh, I want to be like Saul. That guy's awesome. Warrior, good looking, tall. So Saul took his name after King Saul, but you might remember that King Saul ended up being a failure to God. Right? There was still a, a, an identity piece that, Paul, that Saul had a name, Saul. That, he, that was his, his Hebrew Jewish name. But what we see on uh, Paul's first missionary journey when he comes to his, this first island, this first location in Cyprus, and he goes to minister to this man by the name, he's a Roman official by the name of Paulus. And all, interesting, it's almost as if Paul says, my name's Paul too, because 
Paul or Paulus is the Greek form of Saul. But Paul means, the definition means small. It's almost as if he came to this conclusion that, yeah, I used to want to be like Saul. I want to used to, to, to get the attention. I wanted to be the, the Pharisee of Pharisees, right? A tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. You, you wouldn't believe all the things that I've done. But I've thrown it all away for the sake of knowing Jesus. He chooses to be small. He chooses to live the rest of his life as Paul. I like the way that theologian Kent Hughes says, Paul's smallness becomes the medium for God's bigness. His weakness a channel for God's power. And Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's talking about human bodies made of dust and dirt. The treasure of almighty God, creator, king of kings, stored up in these jars of clay. And then he says, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is not a man of arrogance. It's not a man of, uh, of standing tall above everyone else. This is somebody who wants to be known by his identity, not in what he's done. His identity in what Jesus has done. His identity in Christ alone, right? So when I say Paul's not always been Paul, he was Saul. What I love about that, and I hope that you're encouraged this morning, it doesn't matter who you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done, that God can use your life as he can use anybody's life. Because if he can make Saul, the murderer and persecutor of the church, an apostle with authority, by the way, what is an apostle? The word apostle means sent by God. Today, if you, you're in different church cultures, there's different apostles. They're not apostles, capital A apostles. Now, they may be sent by God, small a apostles, but there's only 12 capital A apostles. And those were men sent by Jesus himself. Paul is one of those. And so when he says Paul, an apostle, he's saying, I'm not Saul anymore. My identity is now founded only in Jesus, and I have authority to write this book and for you to listen, to grow, to be discipled from God's word because Jesus sent me. It was his desire or his will that I do this, that I be this. So be encouraged about who you are in Christ and know your identity in him, not in who you've been, not in the mistakes you've made, but what God wants to do in and through your life now, right? Here's the second thing. He speaks to his recipients, these people living in this dark and massive, broken city of Ephesus. Look what he says to them. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. I, I, that is so awesome to me. He calls believers all around the city saints. Again, the first verse talks about Paul's identity. This is the second half of the first verse. He's now still talking about identity, isn't he? I'm no longer Saul, I'm Paul, and I'm an apostle. That's my identity in Christ. And you're not just anybody living in a broken, dark city. You're saints. That change how you feel about your mission. The word saint was, uh, in the Old Testament, was reserved for priests um, and angels. It wasn't, it wasn't given to common people. So for Paul to just say, you're all saints, right? This is the new covenant of Jesus, and you are all saints. The, the word literally means to be set apart, to be holy, to belong to God. So what he's saying is even though you live in a dark, desperate 
uh, spiritually invasive culture. You're saints. You belong to God. You're set apart from this culture. I like even how he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, he gives them the location they're living, and you're faithful in Christ Jesus. He talks about two locations, doesn't he? You live in Ephesus, but you're in Christ Jesus. Friends, can I tell you this morning, you live in central Arkansas, and it is a broken, desperate, dark place that needs Jesus. And you are saints set apart in this place. Set apart, belonging to God with a mission, an identity in him, because you are in Christ, right? You're in Christ. Can I just tell you the truth of, of that statement this morning? The only reason we are saints, the, and some of you go, oh, I don't know if I can call myself a saint. You know, it's hard to even picture, right? I get it, trust me. But the only reason we can call ourselves saints the only reason we can be considered faithful to the Lord is not by our performance, but Jesus's. His finished work on the cross makes us saints who believe, makes us faithful to him. That's the only way that we could be considered a faithful saint. But I want you to notice this last little phrase, in Christ. Paul uses this little phrase more in the book of Ephesians than he does in any other epistle. He uses it 36 times. He's trying to tell us something about identity. He's trying to tell us something about what should, uh, our life should be encompassed within. Knowing, living, understanding, and making known Jesus. Paul's also wanting to remind these believers in the middle of this dark, dark place filled with persecution who they are in Christ. Don't forget, right? Don't forget, yeah, you're part of that guild that makes uh, metal things, or you're, you're, you're over here, you're doing this, but don't forget who you really are. Isn't it easy to get caught up in the things that we do in life? The things we have, the things we're interested in, the groups of people we want to run in. All these different places, you, we find our identity. Hey, I'm a teacher, I'm a this, I, I'm, I'm a, a, a business owner, I'm a pastor, I'm a singer. I'm a, we begin to find little pockets of identity. And then we begin to live out of those places. And friends, that's not the place that God wants us to live. Yes, he's gifted you in, in different ways for your living and for your interests. But may your identity first and foremost be in Jesus as Lord of all. little rerun, sorry. That's what God's calling us to, to be in Christ, Right? So Paul says to us the same thing he says to the believers in Ephesus. He says, you're saints in Little Rock, and yet you are in Christ Jesus. You represent him, even though you live in a culture that is a godless culture. Even though you live in a place where maybe some of your closest family or closest friends dishonor Christ with their lives, their words, their influence, with everything they are. You are a saint of God. You're set apart, and you are in Christ. God is calling us to live that way in that identity, right? Here's the last thing, his greeting. 
What a beautiful greeting. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Such a beautiful greeting. Normally, the, the Greek greeting is uh, kere, which means rejoice. So rejoice in peace. Paul changes a couple of letters in that Greek word to charis, which means grace. And it's this beautiful, beautiful greeting. Uh, Hughes again says this. He's combining the greetings of the Eastern and Western world. And then gives that world a sublime Christian greeting. Grace to you and peace. That is exactly how the gospel works. Grace comes first. And as it fills our lives through the Holy Spirit, it brings shalom. Peace. Reconciliation. Wholeness. See, the, the thing is, is Paul loves these people. You can't get the context of his ministry in Ephesus and his pastorate in Ephesus and his disciple making and the men that he's invested in and, and all that's gone on there and all the difficulty. Some, he almost lost his life. He loves these people. He wants them to know the greatest thing in his life, and that is a relationship with Jesus. So he says, grace to you. Grace is only given to us by the gospel of Jesus. When we know Jesus is our Savior, he saves us by his grace, right? So Paul says, the greatest thing I know, the greatest thing I have, the greatest thing I could even give you in this moment, the gospel of Jesus. It's the greatest thing I've got. Gospel to you. Grace to you. Jesus to you. And then what is the byproduct of the gospel and God's grace in our lives? His peace, right? His peace is what happens. He, br he brings shalom, which is reconciliation. It's perfection. It's wholeness in every area of our lives. That's what God brings either here or later in eternity. He will make all things new. So what a beautiful way to start this letter, right? What a beautiful concept, idea, to just before he even gets into the letter, just to say grace and peace to you. So before we go, what, what are the takeaways? What are the things we go, okay, we've got, we've got two verses here. What do we take away from this little introduction from Paul? Well, here's, here's a few things. My prayer is that you know who you are, that there's no question about what you live in as identity. You know, for a long time in my life, my identity was in being a singer. I wanted to be known as a singer. So I recorded tons of albums and, and, and made a living as a singer and traveled in lots of places. And I wanted you to look at me and go, oh, that's a singer. That's the identity that I wanted until I realized that's not the identity I needed. That's not God's heart for my identity. He, wanted to be, he wants me to be known as his son. He wants me to be known, my identity to be found completely in him for Jesus to be my identity, who also sings. So what is the challenge in your life of identity? Where are you finding identity apart from your relationship with Jesus? I just want to encourage you to pray about that as we get into this new year, that you would find yourself and who you are and who God wants you to be in him and him alone, right? Paul, an apostle. How would you start this letter? What would your identity be in? That God is, is given to you by his will. The other thing is, are we living in his will? Are we living in his design? We wonder why life doesn't feel great. Things aren't working. Well, I ask you to look, look at the design. Are you living in God's design? 
Are you living in his desire, his will? And also, can I just encourage you this way? It's possible to be in God's will and it not be easy. (laughs) I was thinking about this and I just kept thinking, Paul is writing this in chains. You hear him shaking as he's writing. Right? Can you think about that? Is Paul in God's will? Yes. He said it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, right? And yet he's in chains. And many of us would go, oh, the worst thing in my life, I'm in chains. Paul's going, this is God's will. Some of you are walking through God's will, and it is painful and difficult and a struggle. That doesn't mean you're out of God's will. Be faithful to the Father. Know that your identity is in him and him alone. He will be with you in the chains. (laughs) Jesus showed up in that prison in Caesarea. He showed up. He will be with you in your chains. He will be with you in your struggle, in your challenge. The next thing is I hope that we know our position as saints. Do you consider yourself a saint? I hope that faithfulness is how your friends and family would describe your life. And I just want to call partners of South City Church. This sounds official and kind of formal. It kind of is. It kind of is. Because I love you. Because I long for you to be formed in the image of Jesus. I long for you to be in Christ for your position and your practice. Can we be known as a people who are faithful? Can we, saints? And lastly, I pray that the grace of God would cover us, that we would know Jesus as our Savior and that it would lead us to lives of peace because he meets every need you have. One last thing before we go, I want to reference this uh, last text about Ephesus and about the church of Ephesus, but it comes from Jesus, Revelations chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, same group of people, right? He tells John, write this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Just remind you of what that is. The seven stars Jesus tells us in chapter one are the pastors or the angels. The Greek definition is messengers. I find a lot of comfort in that to know that Jesus holds me, right? The one responsible for the message The leaders, Jesus is holding those seven stars. The lampstands are the churches, Jesus said in in Revelation 1. And he says he walks among the churches. I got so encouraged by thinking through this. Jesus holds me. And he walks among you. Isn't that good? He's with us. And look at this encouragement that he gives to the church of Ephesus. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He said, you're good in theology. You're good in upholding godly doctrine and and turning away false doctrine. You're good at bearing under the weight of persecution for my name's sake. These are all encouraging things. 
until verse 4. And verse 4 says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Ephesus was an amazing church. They knew the word. They were persecuted and they held up under persecution in a very dark culture. And yet somehow in the busyness of life in the middle of that culture, somehow in the busyness of ministry and upholding uh, the doctrine of God, they forgot their love relationship with Jesus. And I just think it's, it's fitting for us this morning as we enter into this series in Ephesians. It's not enough just to know everything about God. It's not enough just to be able to call everybody else down on their mistakes, right? No. Do you have that love relationship with Jesus that you had from the beginning? If for some reason right now you're saying, you know, I don't. Jesus says to repent and go back to doing the things that you did when you did have that relationship with him. And I just say that for us as we finish this message and we go into this series that the Lord would know us as a people who, yeah, we want to know doctrine, and we want to be able to face persecution and honor Christ, but we also want to be a people who love Jesus, right? And we live that way. Friends, as we, as we close, can I just say this? May we know who we are. May we know the value of our position as saints. And may God's grace work in our lives as it has in making Paul, Saul, from Saul to Paul, from whoever you were to whoever you're going to be, and that grace would lead you to peace in Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, you are so good, and we are so grateful for your word. God, it's so easy, and I, I just, I pray that you'd forgive me of trying to find my identity in other things, other areas, other groups of significance, wanting credit, wanting to be seen, wanting to be heard, wanting to be acknowledged, when really I need to be small, when really I need to, to come under the truth and the reality that I am in Christ, I don't have to be famous, you are. I can be unknown and yet long to make your name known. God, I can be nothing and count everything I have, everything I've done and everything that's been important to me as rubbish so that I might know you more. I want to be in Christ and I want my identity to be in you and you alone, Jesus. I pray that we would be the saints of God belonging to you, set apart in this evil world. I pray that our ministry and our, our, our mission would be so effective that we would literally see changes in the economy changes in neighborhoods, changes in families, Lord. God, use us in that kind of way, I pray. And Lord, it'll only happen by your grace and in your peace. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We give it to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.